Hello and welcome to the Better Human podcast. My name is Adam Wagner and I'm a barrister specialising in human rights and this podcast is all about human rights. And this edition of the podcast is a special one because it's a joint episode with Prospect Magazine podcast and you can hear the first section of the podcast on the Prospect podcast feed and this is the second section. So the first section was about the independence of the judiciary and the second section is about the Human Rights Act and judicial review. And I've got here alongside me Tom Clark. Hello, pleased to be your co-host today. And I will not stop plugging the fact that there's a new big article in the new issue of Prospect Magazine all about the independence of the judiciary and the threat to the courts. And the Better Human podcast is kindly supported by Goldsmiths Law and their pioneering new LLB Law undergraduate course taught in London. Applications are now open. You can learn more by visiting gold.act.uk forward slash law. And I'm delighted to say that the next few episodes of the Better Human podcast are sponsored by Lee Day and Co, the human rights department there. Um, they are solicitors in London. If you want to support the podcast, you can go to patreon.com forward slash better human. So alongside Tom Clark, who's my co-host and is the editor of Prospect Magazine, we have Martha Spurrier, the director of Liberty, Charlie Faulkner, who is a Labour peer and shepherded through the Constitutional Reform Act back in 2005, and Tessa Gregory, who is a partner in the Human Rights Department of Lead Co Solicitors. Okay, so now we're going to talk about the potential changes to the Human Rights Act into judicial review. And I'm just going to start by reading out this, the very short paragraph in the Tory manifesto. So we all know what's going to happen, or at least um, uh, what we know is going to happen. After Brexit, we also need to look at the broader aspects of our constitution, the relationship between the government, parliament and the courts, the functioning of the royal prerogative, the role of the House of Lords and access to justice for ordinary people, the ability of our security service to services to defenders against terrorism and organised crime is critical. We will update the Human Rights Act and administrative law, that's judicial review, that's my, um, my interpretation, to ensure that there is a, broad, a proper balance between the rights of individuals, our vital national security and effective government. We will ensure that judicial review is available to protect the rights of the individuals against an overbearing state, while ensuring that it's not abused to conduct politics by another means or to create needless delays. In our first year, we will set up a Constitution, Democracy and Rights Commission that will examine these ideas in depth and come up with proposals to restore trust in our institutions and how our democracy operates. Um, so I'll start with Martha. Martha, what do you think that means? Well, I read it as being sinister, and that's not because I'm some sort of Luddite against the idea of any kind of constitutional reform, but because if you look back a little bit further, the Conservative Party have a pretty consistent history when it comes to the Human Rights Act, to access to justice and to executive scrutiny. Updating the Human Rights Act sounds innocuous, but this is a party that in previous manifestos has pledged to repeal the Human Rights Act. Um, we have seen drip-fed over the last few months critiques of the Human Rights Act, critiques of um, accountability for troops operating abroad, suggestions that positive obligations, so the kinds of obligations that mean that the police have to effectively investigate crime, for example, or that we have to fearlessly investigate deaths in state custody, that those obligations have gone too far. Suggestions that historic human rights abuses shouldn't then be given um, scrutiny in the courts now. And so what we're starting to see is a narrative emerging of rather than universal human rights that the state has to honour no matter who you are, a sense that rights may become conditional on status, on behaviour, on time and on place. And 
my view is that any executive government who seeks to water down human rights protections or to do that by the back door by doing things like restricting access to justice or changing rules on standing or legal aid has to be considered with great scepticism because it is entirely in their self-interest to try and cloak their decisions, some of which may be controversial, unlawful, unfair, unreasonable, to cloak those decisions from public scrutiny. Tessa, just putting on the brakes um, in terms of the what's going to happen. Mm. For, for people listening, I, I think people have a sort of vague idea of what human rights kind of claims are. I think people have less of an idea of what judicial review is. Um, you're a p- practitioner and a very su- su- successful practitioner in this area. Can you just give a, a bit of an overview of what, what, what's a judicial review? And can you give an example of, of one that... Um, the, the kinds of judicial reviews that you think this is targeted at? Well, judicial review is challenging the decision or policy of a public body. And so you might be going against central government. I'm acting in a number of cases for individuals who are challenging the Secretary of State for Work and Pensions in relation to the implementation of universal credit. And these cases hit the headlines. Um, We use the Human Rights Act. Uh, At the moment, we are saying in a number of cases that universal credit is acting in a discriminatory fashion and that some of the secondary legislation should be struck down as a result. So uh, yesterday, we got a decision on behalf of two severely disabled people who had moved local authorities and had to go on to universal credit and had a drop in their income of £180 per month just because of that even though their needs um, and their disabilities were exactly the same and those cases have redound politically they get big headlines and I don't think the government um, likes them Uh, similarly cases brought by interest groups Um, I act for Wild Justice which is a new campaigning organization looking at how the government's complying with wildlife law and environmental protections Um, and the government this government I don't think does like to be challenged in court and these it keeps losing Well, (laughs) I mean, it doesn't actually, you know, if you actually, I'm sure if you take the statistics for judicial review, the winners are, um, uh, the, the times the government wins probably far outweighs the time that claimants wins. And they're difficult cases to bring. You've got strict time limits, you've got cost risks, you've got vanishing legal aid. So, you know, holding, trying to hold the government to account through litigation is not, um, an easy job. And I think what we're seeing here is the government reacting to the prorogation cases, big losses which hit the headline, and using those to try and shore up their power um, and become less checked by the courts. And that is a concern for all of us who are concerned with individual rights and who are concerned about the rule of law. There's a telling phrase, isn't there, which I noticed in writing this article in in the magazine because it was used both by the chap from Policy Exchange, uh, who's a former um, government draftsman, and in the um, Conservative Manifesto, which Adam just run out, which is that these cases, judicial review goes wrong when it's being used to pursue politics by other means. Now, I suspect, Charlie, that the case in the front of their minds is probably the Miller stuff, isn't it? Definitely. And that's what's driven this. Judicial review is the means by which the courts hold the government, the executive, to the law. 
And the rule of law means nothing unless there is a means to make sure the executive complies with the law. It is ultimately for the judges, not the executive, to decide where the boundary is between politics on the one hand and the law on the other. It is not for the judges to make political decisions. It is only for the judges to decide whether the decision made by the executive is made within the law. There will be disputes about where the boundary lies in relation to that. And that was the absolute essence of the prorogation case. Is a decision to prorogue Parliament so political that the judges can't interfere on any basis at all? Or are there some outer limits of legality in when you decide to prorogue Parliament, which the role of the judges is to police? And the government argued there's no limits at all. Legally, it's so political that the courts can't get involved at all. And the court said, no, that's not right. We will determine whether it's in what the outer limits are. And you've gone beyond the outer limits. If the executive begins to determine what the limits of judicial review are, then, of course, it contracts and contracts and contracts. And the ability to hold the executive to the law becomes much, much harder. What Tessa said just now is also separately incredibly important. It's incredibly difficult anyway for people to get to court to hold the executive to the law. Once you narrow even more the grounds on which they get there, remember you haven't got legal aid to do it mm. generally, you've got to go through a process of getting permission from the court to do it in the first place. If you, if you do get there and you lose, you could be ruined financially by the consequences. Not many people are willing to do it. And it's sort of depends entirely on whether or not you've got a cause that you can generally engage other people in or engage lawyers in who are motivated by the, the common good or there might be some financial gain in relation to it. But it's very, very difficult. And what the government is saying on their page 48, which Adam read at the beginning, is we're going to make sure the lawyers and the judges don't get in our way now. And it's a terrible thing, because one thing you can be absolutely sure of was that page 48 was not intended to persuade anyone to vote for the Conservatives. It was never referred to in the election. It was there to provide legitimacy for a contraction in the role of the courts if the Conservatives got a big majority. It was a means of trying to cow the Lords from resisting. And they've now got their big majority. So something is definitely coming down the track. But you're in the Lords. The Lords, by convention, only nods things through when they're in the manifesto. What Adam read out is so hazy. Are your um, fellow Lords, most of whom I think won't like this stuff, going to vote it through on the basis that there's a democratic mandate when when what's the democratic mandate for modernization I updating agree. i hope that we say no to it uh they they've got a bit there to try to justify it and the nature of the convention is if it's part of a government program then generally although the although the lords will say think again they won't ultimately say no indefinitely except if it goes to the heart of the Constitution. And I very much hope that the effect of the Lord's interventions will mean that any restriction on judicial review 
or any attempt to rewrite the Human Rights Act, which is just as important mm -hmm. because that goes to generally accepted basic rights that can't be reduced. I hope the Lords will be effective in making sure any intervention or incursion is as little as possible. The Better Human podcast is supported by your contributions. If you find it useful and interesting, I would really appreciate if you consider giving just $3 a month. That's just over £2 via our Patreon. That's patreon.com forward slash betterhuman. And if a couple of hundred people do that, then that will make the podcast sustainable and I can carry on interviewing interesting guests about fascinating human rights subjects. Martha, I'm updating the Human Rights Act. It doesn't give any detail about what that is, but do you think based on what the various different um, conservative governments of the last few years have said, we can get some sort of general clues as to what that might mean? Yes, I, I fear that's right. So no Conservative Party politician has ever gone on record saying that updating or repealing or reforming the Human Rights Act means adding more rights. Sometimes people talk about a right to jury trial. That's the only additional right that's ever cited. So it, in actual fact, what this agenda is, is a diminishing of rights. It is a watering down of individual rights and freedoms. It's a reduction in executive scrutiny and a fattening of state power. Um, and I think we will see potentially particular attacks on the rights that are seen as quote-unquote unpopular. Um, and so that might be the rights of migrant communities, it might be the rights of terror suspects and prisoners, it might be the rights of people who have suffered abuses by the military abroad. And what politicians will be banking on in a majoritarian and perhaps increasingly popular system is that the electorate won't mind those people's rights being taken away and that at the ballot box those people won't have a big enough say if they have any say at all to make a difference uh, to our majoritarian democracy and so that's why this is dangerous it's why it's an attack on the rule of law and it's why it's an attack on the fabric of democracy itself because the whole point when you have a majoritarian democracy is that you have to have a counterbalance so that our standards of fairness and lawfulness and reasonableness and proportionality apply to you regardless of whether you have for example immigration status in this country or regardless of whether you've committed a crime um, or are in some way deemed by society or by certain sections of the press as a kind of undeserving person. And, and Tom, there, there was a bit in your article, um, which I found, I, I, it was a very interesting article, and I recommend people read it. But there's a bit at the end, um, which I think it might give a clue as to what they're thinking about in terms of the Human Rights Act, because it's from the head of policy, it's from, um, is it Stephen Laws, who talks about what the policy exchange judicial power project thinks should be done about the European Convention on Human Rights. And they say, for now, let's try and get some sort of ability for states to enter reservations on European Court of Human Rights um, judgments. And then we'll see if, if that happens and if that works. And that sounds to me like a kind of replication of the approach to the EU, the long-term approach to the EU. <laughs> That's a very good point. Um, I think the um, the bits we quote, we quote a report, which is by Professor Eakins, who uh, Charlie mentioned. And then, um, but we did the interview with Stephen Laws, who's a former um, first parliamentary counsel. So the guy who writes the laws and tries to get the laws to do what um, what ministers want. So, you know, his perspective is is like, you know, 
why are these judges getting in the way of democracy, I guess. Um, and I think that that's exactly it. It's, it's all couched in this very kind of gently, gently sort of language about, first of all, well, we've got these powers anyway, let's use them, let's have a discussion with people elsewhere in the Council of Europe about whether there should be a new mode of making reservations to interpretations and margins of appreciation, all this kind of stuff. But then when you read the, uh, the, the actual report, it does say, and we could just decide not to comply with some of these Strasbourg <laughs> rulings as a kind of fallback. What you say about Stephen Laws is very interesting. He's a parliamentary draftsman, exactly as you say, feeling all the time that his attempts to achieve a particular thing were then frustrated by the courts. The conclusion he draws from that is not that the judges are applying the law in an independent, objective way, but that they are in some way motivated to frustrate the legitimate decisions that a government has made as expressed in primary or secondary legislation. So his answer, which is a discreditable answer, is clip the wings of the judges rather than draft legislation in a different way. On Adam's point about the Human Rights Act, the danger, it seems to me, of a, quote, updated or tweaked Human Rights Act is that you inevitably, one way or another, have to depart from the European Convention on Human Rights. And the moment that you've got the executive deciding, because our executive generally controls the legislature, so our executive, which has got a big majority now, could say this is our conception of human rights, and we've now put it in legislation. The moment you depart from a regional treaty that is the agreed view of a large number of nations, and you simply take the executive's view, then human rights protection is is very, very severely under threat because the executive's view of what should be human rights will always be different from an objective view. Having been a member of the executive, I can tell you, you should be very worried <laughs> about the extent to the way that the executive finds human rights lawyers and judges a fetter on what they honestly but wrongly believe is doing the right thing. So that is why the moment you let the executive, and remember the executive got a majority of 80 at the moment, to decide, you know, they, we think it's wrong that human rights should apply to the, the armed forces. We think it's wrong that human rights should unduly restrict our intelligence services from doing what they need to protect the country. We think it's wrong for human rights to interfere in things that are that are not that serious, which is another thing that they've suggested. We think it's wrong that the right to family life should be expanded in the way that it's been expanded. The moment they start setting the terms, it's going to be a very attenuated protection. Could, could I just put in a word, and I'm not in the habit of doing this, but on behalf of the Conservative Party, because um, actually the Conservative Party has quite a distinguished record uh, in some respects, on human rights. Um, Maxwell Fife, I think, was involved in drafting the original convention uh, as part of the Churchill government after the war. Um, and uh, much more recently, a distinguished conservative, then conservative, Attorney General um, uh, Dominic Grieve, really did see all the points Charlie's making, which is that if you're going to mess around with the Human Rights Act, in the end, this leads you away from uh, the European Convention and all the good that that's done across the whole continent of Europe, it starts to unravel. And so I think it's quite important in making 
clear that, like, you know, there is a Conservative tradition here that's different from the one that happens to be running the Conservative Party in the moment. But, but Dominic Grieve was sacked for, the, uh, for, 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 <laughs> for, for bringing that up. And I think that probably says a lot about where the, the current Conservative government or the executive... Well, that's where they are at the moment. Yeah, but well, we need to appeal to the other Conservative well, traditions. Yeah. Two things. Like one, Dominic Grieve wasn't only sacked as Attorney General for standing up for the Human Rights Act. He's now been sacked from the Conservative Party. So that tradition has been gravely weakened. Secondly, the current Attorney General, Geoffrey Cox, shows absolutely no sign whatsoever of standing up either for the independence of the judges or for the Human Rights Act. Yeah, I think this Conservative government now is not one that is harking back to those traditions, unfortunately. And it all seems to me rather disingenuous because it's all, they're kind of creating a lot of noise on the back of the prorogation case, which actually at its heart was about political uh, parliamentary sovereignty. But it was also a difficult case. My view is that the courts were right to um, find as they did. But I can understand that there's debate either side. Um, And as the old adage, hard cases make bad law, to then use that case to try and legislate to clip the wings of the judiciary is is really improper and I think disingenuous as well. What does this, do you think, all really highlight the danger of not having a written constitution? Um, because there's, there just isn't that safety net. You know, if, if, the, if this government with a majority of 80 decides to withdraw from the European Convention or at least uh, moves away from it, can then edit the Human Rights Act, update it in a way which makes it difficult to um, to access or legal, you know, legal aid and all sorts of backdoor procedural changes to judicial review. Is the answer to work in, in the long term or the medium term towards something which is more entrenched so that governments with massive majorities can't just come along and change it. But the price you pay for a written constitution is there is a document construed by the judges that is above everything, and that of itself politicizes the judges. Our strength has always been that the judges are not politicized. They would become politicized if they were determining issues like abortion or the, the, the substance of policy decisions, which is what happens when you have a constitution, not in the outset, because the constitution to start with appears only to defend process issues, but 60 years down the line, the constitution then becomes the subject of the resolution of substantive rights, as it does in the States. And it's for that reason that the judges are so political in the US. So you you reduce the risks of the sort of interference I'm talking about, but you increase the disease that you're trying to prevent. Martha, stick or twist? I think on balance, the arguments for a written constitution are becoming stronger and stronger. But I do agree that there is a real danger, both that it politicizes the judges, but also that what you get in a written constitution is a snapshot of what right now society needs and wants. Um, The beauty of human rights law and of the common law is that it can evolve with changing standards. And so whereas the drafters of the convention never imagined the importance of digital rights or the rights of the trans community, those legal instruments now are flexible and muscular enough to incorporate those changing social 
standards and norms. The risk of a written constitution is that you get something that is elevated to a a, a kind of um, sacred standard, and then it fails to move with the time. So I think if we are to continue to see executive threats to accountability, we're going to have no choice but to think about having a written constitution just as a basic form of protection. Um, but I don't think that it's a complete answer to the problem. Okay. Tessa? Yeah, I, I like the dynamic nature of the law at the moment and the way it can evolve. But with this government right now, I think I'd plump for a written constitution. <laughs> Tom, yes or no? I'd write some more things down. I just see today we've got some of the John Burko stuff being um, unravelled by the new speaker. But I think maybe it's better to do what we've done with the Human Rights Act and codify distinct bits here and there um, rather than have one overarching document. Okay. So thank you very much to Martha Spurrier, to Tom Clark, to Tessa Gregory and Charlie Faulkner. This has been the Better Human podcast. It's also been the Prospect podcast. So it's goodbye from him. <laughs> and goodbye from me. Bye-bye. <laughs> Thanks, a go. Thank Thanks, Thanks a million. Thanks, Martha. Thanks a million. Thanks all. Thanks very much for listening to the Better Human podcast. This has been a special joint episode with the Prospect Magazine podcast. The Better Human podcast is supported by Goldsmiths Law and their pioneering new LLB law undergraduate course taught in London. Applications are now open. You can visit gold.act.uk forward slash law for more information. Um, this episode and the next few episodes are sponsored by Lee Day and Co Solicitors and the Human Rights Department there. Thank you very much to my guests and to Prospect Magazine. See you next time.